0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte.
2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with South China. Of China offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you this week from my brother Jay's apartment in Manhattan. I'm Kaiser Boa, joined this week by a man claiming to be Donald Trump's publicist, John Miller, who looks to me suspiciously <laughs> like my friend Jeremy Goldcorn. How are you, John?
0: I, I'm doing great. I'm I, I am making America great again, okay. Kaiser. Yeah. All right.
2: Thank you, thank you for that. Uh speaking of the Donald, as active agents for for peaceful evolution in China, like me and like you have all doubtless experienced, Our mission has been made a bit more difficult in recent months by the rise of Donald Trump and his now near certain cinching of the GOP nomination. Fuck. I mean, I I actually find it really difficult to meet anyone's eyes and talk to them in candor about, you know, American democracy. Um, In my own circles, actually, I have to be honest, in China, I, I have yet to meet anyone who doesn't have the same hot contempt for him that I do, and yet the internet, as I am told, and as many media outlets have been writing, actually is full of people who are Trump fans. So apparently, the short-fingered vulgarian has a uh, has his share of admirers in the PRC. <laughs> oh, he does, he does indeed. Um, so
0: today we are delighted to welcome Fan Jia Yang or Jia Yang Fan as. She's put in the master of the New Yorker, (laughs) (laughs) who after some years as a contributor has now been hired as a staff writer for the New Yorker. Yay. Yay. And she's recently written about Trump and the similarity between his appeal to some Americans and some Chinese and that of Mao Zedong to the Chinese of his day. Kaiser and I have both really enjoyed her contributions over the past few years and listeners to our show are doubtless familiar with much of her work.
2: Maybe. Maybe not a reviews.
0: Well, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so is that, that's part of your beat, right? You write reviews of bars. I write review
1: of <laughs> bars, though um, I don't think I've ever made this admission in public. I am missing that enzyme that I believe 50%— Oh, it's called
2: of- aldehyde dehydrogenase. Oh, I'm glad you're yeah. so familiar with this. You get the, red, the you Chinese get the red flush. Right, which ah. also
1: means that I'm, I think— um, more susceptible to esophagus cancer. Um, It just comes with all these other... Cheap
2: date, too.
1: (laughs) A very incredibly cheap date, but has always made me feel somewhat fraudulent as the... Bar reviewer okay. for the New York. We're so. all about confessions. On this show, so I'm glad you come clean with that. I think
2: I have an overabundance of aldehyde dehydrogenase, and that that, that explains my propensity. I
1: well, I think there's been a, an equitable distribution among you know the Chinese population. There's some, that a lot of Northerners can right. put it back. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Right. They, can, yeah. they can knock them back, and others yeah. like me are doomed. You yep, know, by a, yeah, a, half, so by even have a. So you're
2: actually you were born in Chongqing, right? Yes. Uh, Right. And so you you said you finished second grade and then came over here?
1: Yes, I finished second grade. So on the eve of my eighth birthday, I was seven when I arrived.
2: That is interesting. I mean, so because I ask this for entirely selfish reasons, because I am about to embark on an experiment uh, to create two completely bicultural children. And I mean, to be honest, you are one of the people who uh, I have always sort of looked at, looked to in the belief that it is possible to be bicultural because, you know, you you write in English. And I, w- I would love to see my children one day be able to actually write fluently in two languages. I mean, I write appallingly badly in Chinese. I mean, it's like embarrassingly <laughs> bad. I, I lived there for 20 fucking years and I, I still can't, I, I can, you know, make my way through an email without too many trovietses, but it's not exactly elegant. <laughs> I, I'm good at texting, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, you're, here you are, you're writing for the most, one of the most writerly and prestigious magazines in, in, the, in the world, in, in English and not your native language. So how's your Chinese still?
1: Um my Chinese is I I mean thank you for referring to it as my native language. It is it is it's strange. Um it's the language that I most frequently dream in. Huh. Um I it's, an, it's the it's the language I count in at all times. Well I,
2: I do too, actually. I I, I can only remember content. phone numbers <laughs> in,
1: in, in Chinese. Right. It just comes I mean they're they're yeah. they're not you know, multisyllabic. Um that's what some it of is. The numbers.
2: It's just that damn seven. <laughs>
1: And like you, another confession here, I've also shared this fantasy about how to cultivate the lives of my non-existent children and how to create...
2: A Chinese super race.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least cultivate conditions that would allow them to be both um, multilingual and multicultural. And I think the second really goes... Hand in hand with the first, so I have Chinese American friends who send their children to Chinese Sunday school here once a day and once um, no, a, a week. week and right. I applaud them for the effort. But sometimes I think it must be very difficult for the children to feel for fully yeah.
2: Immersed. I had to do it.
1: Right? Really? Mean,
2: it didn't do shit. I mean, I could. Rem- <laughs> I can. I can still, you know, recite Trung Thiên It's very difficult. I mean, my my daughter uh,
0: as soon as she started going to preschool in the United States. Suddenly, had an aversion to speaking Chinese at home, uh. and it's got a little better since the preschool fired the Chinese teachers. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 how's that?
2: <laughs> w- were they were they CI?
0: <laughs> no, they weren't. They uh, weren't. Okay.
2: They weren't Confucius Institute. But uh, uh, yeah, it, it's a tough one. So, I mean, I, I've I've wondered that you talk about having warring allegiances and sort of a, a split identity uh, in. And finding it, you know, kind of—I know—I find it difficult to try to inhabit both identities and uh, to inhabit both worlds. some, some am you just talk a little bit about that. I mean, I I know when you read, for example, you were asked that on that panel that you were on with a bunch of other uh, the older New Yorker writers, like yes. all the way up to or- Orville Shell and see Pete Hustler was on that. Yeah, and, uh, um, Evan, uh, Evan, and and, and uh, Remnick, right? And Remnick was was the uh, was hosting it, right? and And so Jianying. was yeah yeah you you talked about that as as when you're talking you know when you read Chinese uh, a, a western reportage on China, you had a really interesting metaphor, I thought,
1: yes, I did you really hadn't heard me until that moment when I was asked that question that image of what kind of an x-ray and how Western reporting very much half the facts mapped out almost like the bones in an x-ray and to me, the sinews and the tendons and the nerves, um, which are not reflected on x-ray, just um, seem absent. And I thought that was a good way to characterize at least my reception or my reading of a lot of Western media coverage much of which I admire um, and applaud. Yeah, it's anatomically precise, right? I mean, you know, the bones are are
2: there. Right. But it's missing the context, essentially. Right, right.
1: The, the, The flesh. And sometimes it's been difficult, I think, to even articulate to myself and certainly to my American friends what that flesh exactly is. I get the question that, well, if the facts are there, then, you know, what can be missing? I mean, what is, you know, cultures are different. Everybody has a different context. What exactly, you know, are you saying? And I'm reminded of, you know, when I first arrived in the States in the early 90s, And after a year or two of struggling to speak, you know, very poor English, I thought I had bonded with this great desk mate of mine. And she, um, one day in conversation, she looked at me and I thought she was going to, you know, ask, you know, a really penetrating, you know, question that was going to make us best friends forever. But she said, you know, what is it like having all your sisters killed? (laughs) <laughs> and i really um and it really took me back i honestly couldn't even put it in my I, I honestly had trouble understanding what she was talking about and then putting that in con- in the context of oh the one child policy which i knew you know the term for which I, which which i knew how i am how I am a product of that policy. But the way that she had phrased the question um, and this idea that, you know, I had, you know, sisters that were, you know, murdered. I mean, taking a step back, I think, you know, do I, has my mother had abortions? Yes. Did I even at a young age know that many women had abortions? I did. Did I know that men, sons were prized over um, daughters? I did. I mean, all of those things I knew. But, the reporting, or whatever her parents had told her, I think probably from reading the papers, seemed to reflect that there was this, you know, country on the other side of the world that was on this rampage, killing all extra young Females female children.
2: Infanticide.
1: <laughs> right. And, uh,
2: drowning them in buckets. What, what, where was this, just out of curiosity?
1: This was in New Haven, Connecticut. This uh, okay. was in 1992 oh, wow. yeah. 90, 94. But
0: I, I mean, I've got to say that, that certainly isn't exclusive to China. I mean, I get people asking me, like, if we have elephants run, or, you know, Wandering around near my house in Johannesburg in South Africa. Yeah, but that's the, the, you know this guy. alleging, right, right. I mean, I, I mean, there's sort of ignorance. I think sure, you know ignorance there's is stereotypes, innocent. and yes, there are elephants in South Africa, just like there is a one-child policy. But it's sort of, I think a lot of people in the United States have a very sort of uh, a view of other countries that. Just comes from the most sensational aspects of the headlines,
1: right? And as a member of the media, I feel increasingly that it's my, you know, responsibility to understand that dynamic and to be aware of it in my own work, certainly. And I, you know, I, I cite that um, only child example because now when I read some out of our most illustrious and popular media outlets and their, I think, mostly commendable coverage of China, there are moments when I think, wow, they've put this one issue that is clearly, you know, a problem in China, be it pollution or violation of human rights, and they've really inserted it under the microscope in a way that kind of, you know, magnifies those particular cells, but that I think requires the surrounding organism to be fully understood. It's not that their examination of those particular cells under the microscope is wrong. Those clearly are the facts. But if the project is to understand, you know, if the project to carry this metaphor a little further, of science is to understand how this organism works, and that's why we're looking at we're looking at it under the microscope in the first place. You can't I just think, look at
2: the diseased cells, right? Right.
1: Then we you know, then it's our responsibility to be looking at the the entirety of the So you're of kind the, of the,
0: recommending of the, like a Chinese medicine approach in the sense that <laughs> a holistic, no, no. Approach, holistic to, approach to uh, to to, um, to
1: media. Which you know even as i say um say it out loud you know so- perhaps sounds wildly you know idealistic and um impractical to implement
2: yeah and it isn't easy to implement i mean let's be i mean look you you don't have that many column inches you know in a in an american publication that you can devote to it i mean that's part of the reason why jeremy and i started this podcast is we, we wanted to
0: fill in the gaps to, right yeah. to, to to talk so to reporters let's talk about something that the rest of the world is possibly looking at in similarly decontextualized Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> So your most recent piece in The New Yorker, uh, Uh at least as of today, I'm not sure when the podcast will be broadcast, but as of today was about Donald Trump and comparing him now just at the time of the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Cultural Revolution Uh to Mao Zedong. In what way are these two men similar?
1: Well, in every instance in which I have observed the Donald, he is... On a stage, you know there are you know gesticulations. He is being adored by the masses, and somehow that image really um, you know these are at his rallies. So understandably, it's people, it's his supporters, and that. Image um, stayed with me, and it wasn't until when I was asked, you know, to write a pe- this piece about how Trump is received in China, that it occurred to me that another image from childhood of another sort of rather portly man standing on a stage has almost just been kind of a the, the my default uh, setting, um, my 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 stock image of of a leader, and I think what both men. Have a talent for doing is drawing out this dynamic between the in-group, the us, the, the the workers, the good ones, versus the outsiders, the villains, the perpetrators, the out-group, and when I think about it, it's so it's so natural and so intuitive especially in times of crisis to want to target the people who have caused you pain and I think that's as true in two thousand sixteen when you have dispossessed disgruntled blue-collar workers who feel um, I think somewhat impotent and distant from power as it was back in you know back in the era of Mao when you had workers who Or you know, just were coming out of a revolution. Who were just emerging from poverty. Many of them struggling with it. Who kind of uh, needed to know well, how do I, you know, how do I proceed from here? Who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys? How do I align myself with with the good guys? And Trump's rhetoric and
0: people who just wanted to kind of kick some like elite people's ass. Yeah, yeah. I I I think that was the cultural revolution. Always seemed to me like. Um, and I, I recall some lines from. There's a great book by Yeah that interviews a bunch of people, and some of them were sort of working class people who basically said, "Look, that's the only time in my life where I got to, you know, beat up the kid who had, you know, the father who was somebody." Right. And that was fun.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I think both men's ability to kind of appeal to the basest instincts. In yes. Yeah, absolutely. Is, um, is uncanny.
2: It's interesting, you know. Here we have Trump, who's a billionaire, maybe, but no, he's certainly a, a, a multi-millionaire at least. Where there's some speculation now that the reason he's not releasing his tax returns is because he's not actually a billionaire. But um, <laughs> well, I suppose by well, the he's time got he's got
0: enough money for his own jet, right? <laughs> sure, sure. So, no, so he's but but you know,
2: here he is, you know, using this uh, his demagoguery to mobilize people against the bankers, against the fat cats, against the privilege,
0: against the people who've
2: been lending him money all the, all these years <laughs> to
0: make his and and similarly. uh,
2: who himself I mean say what you will about him but he qualifies as an intellectual Uh, you know he was a librarian at 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 uh, at yeah he wasn't a grassroots peasant he's not not a grassroots he comes from a rich peasant family but uh, he's an intellectual he certainly qualifies as such Uh, and you know his animus was directed against the you know the stinking ninth category the, Mm -hmm. the you know the, the despicable intellectual class so yeah the, that that kind of elitism is is definitely uh, similar to the two of them a, a friend of mine remarked that among his chinese friends uh, it's it's the same people who express admiration for Vladimir Putin who also say they admire Trump and presumably, well, certain Chinese leaders like, you know, Xi Jinping or, or Mao Zedong and probably, you know, Qin Shi Huang. It's not an uncommon thing to hear. Uh, I mean, there was a study that was done by this political scientist. Uh, his name is Matthew McWilliams. Um, it, it, uh, he did it under the auspices of UMass Amherst. And I actually noticed this paper when Mary Kay Magstad actually talked about it on her podcast, Whose Century Is It?, Uh, The study suggests that the thing that predicts most strongly whether a given person will be a Trump supporter is the extent of their authoritarian thinking. That is, you know, how they respond to a, a lot of sort of psychology questions about your attitudes, about childhood punishment, about corporal punishment, about a whole bunch of issues that are related to that. And others have suggested, I'm think, here, thinking here of the Andrew Sullivan piece that I don't know if you, if you read, uh, have suggested that American democracy has reached like, this crazy extreme of anti elitism And that has made us really ripe for a dictatorial demagogue. Uh, so do you have a favorite theory explaining either his popularity, Trump's popularity here in the US or, or back in China?
1: A few friends, a few Chinese friends I've talked to painted this portrait of Trump that I thought didn't completely really cohere with reality, but at least gave me insight as to how he is perceived in China, which is that, you know, one of the first things they said it was, I mean, the man is just so... Tremendously successful. And you know, he um, created all himself. And I at that moment had to c- correct him and say, Well, it's you know, he didn't really come from um, nothing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and then immediately, you know, my friend said, but he was no four day, you know, four day being a second generation wealthy. And I said, Well, actually Yeah, he was <laughs> he, he, <laughs> I mean, I that's think that's exactly what <laughs> that, I was. That, that's what he was. That you know, and we had this back and forth, and um, what I took away was. From it was that Trump has been so good at uh, manicuring his own image, and that in China um, there's still um, you know la- there there there's still kind of a vagueness to, to to their understanding of Trump that he seems like that guy who builds luxury hotels, casinos, winning TV shows, all on his own merit, and. A guy who turns into gold everything he touches is a guy that I want at the helm of our nation. And it seems almost as simple as that. And the more I try to supply other biographical details, the less interested my friends were in listening. They wanted to preserve their own image of what Trump was you know, is and because I think they had erected this idea of him as a strongman and they did not want any, you know, they didn't want any chink in the armor in that sense.
2: Did you, uh, f- do you find that the sa- these same people have attitudes towards Xi Jinping that are similar? They-, they like that strongman figure, that authoritarian figure? Or do you think that they, they are, the- are these people who are sort of more persuaded by neoliberal arguments and don't like Xi Jinping in the direction China's going?
1: well they usually are a little bit more informed about xi jinping which makes you know a conversation more interesting when we're when, when when we are um in the midst of facts but they also um what's attractive about xi jinping which i wrote in my um in my trump piece is um as you know another professor at tsinghua said daniel bell that um despite you know his curbing of you know civil liberties and whatnot this corruption drive whatever its goals i mean whatever its kind of ulterior motives it seems to be taking you know both tigers and flies to task and that's encouraging for the general mm. populace mm-hmm. um so there's this idea of you know a strong man who is willing able to come in here and clean house and there's something deeply i think uh, attractive and almost i think collectively like cathartic for the people mm. that you know there's some guy you know who no matter his personal politics or his other foibles, is at least is brave enough to take a stand.
0: He's going to clean out the jian stables, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what about Hillary? I mean, in the course of um, researching your article about Trump, did you talk to uh, the people you spoke to? Did you talk at all about Hillary and Chinese attitudes to her?
1: Yes, I'm really glad you mentioned her because I...
0: Hillary Clinton. Yes, of would be living That's, <laughs> That's what I'm referring to. I just going to make sure,
1: yeah. Right. Whenever I mentioned the name Hillary, a grimace would inevitably cross the <laughs> brows of my... Um... That's
2: pretty uniform in China.
1: Though. You know, and I... W- and why, why? Right, right. And mostly they they find her, and you know, excuse this term, which is somewhat loaded, they they find her nagging about human rights violations, about women's rights, to be divorced from the realities of what the average citizens are contending at this very moment. This is not to say that these people don't have thoughts about human rights or do not recognize that you would be great if men or women were equal. What they're saying is, how does that help my monthly salary? How does that in quantifiable ways...
2: Doesn't in- sound like Chinese people to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Increase my standard of living. And how does her gabbing and how does her... Provocation of the Chinese political elite, you know, help my life in concrete ways. So I think there's just this sense of, you know, there's this well-educated woman who has, you know, who had a husband who was president, who had, you know, some you know marital problems of their own um, to sort out, and is now really gunning for the top seat. But all she seems to care about is these, um, these, is these. Principles that do not have a direct effect that I can see on my life.
2: Interesting, interesting.
1: Yeah, and uh, I and when I ask, well, isn't it exciting that you know she's a woman and you know she will she will potentially be the first woman president, they say, well, you know, we already have, you know, a Taiwanese woman president, we have a South Korean one. You know, the idea of a woman at the top job is not, you know, we already have Angela Merkel. In, in um,
0: That's a pretty interesting point, actually, that in East Asia, uh, despite the fact that it's generally considered Confucian and kind of sexist, that South Korea and Taiwan both have female presidents yes. before... United States. Yeah. Yes, yes. yes, absolutely. And even Hong Kong has had some pretty powerful mm-hmm. political leaders. Oh, fuck. Who I mean, women, Pakistan Anson has. I mean,
2: pa- Pakistan, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that's an Islamic state, let's not yeah. forget. <laughs> um, uh, what strikes me, though, is that, I mean, I guess you're talking to a kind of a different set than I am what I hear most of the time uh, when I raise Hillary is how hawkish she is I mean that mm-hmm. she that she is like the embodiment of this interventionism Yes, this American intervention you hear that that, that too ah, interesting one one of the, the pieces that I wanted to talk to you about one of the many pieces of yours that, that really stands out for me was the one that you wrote during the so-called umbrella revolution in Hong Kong uh, explaining why it is that your friends in China didn't feel any stake in or really take that much of an interest in what was happening down in central and other places in hong kong so t- talk to us a bit about that piece what compelled you to write it and and, and especially what kind of a reaction it got
1: mm-hmm. yeah no thank you for asking about that piece because um it is in you know, despite piece um discussing a political movement it felt like one of the most personal pieces i'd ever written and i looking back i think it's because i was excavating This my own very vexed relationship and feelings about Hong Kong that I never felt comfortable, you know, sharing in public, especially in the U.S. with American friends who have who take very vocal stances about Taiwan, about Tibet, about, you know, maintaining the constitutional independence of hong kong for me writing it was 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 cathartic and i in discussing it even with my mother really i felt like i was reaching back into mm-hmm. early 90s china a period that if you had that if you don't live through feels you know so incredibly distant and also I think even distant not only from the U.S. but to contemporary China, I you know the comparison I drew between Hong Kong and this pampered mistress um, I think is one that I thought might you know rub some people the wrong way, but also felt you know to me the most kind of accurate comparison I could come up with. The surprising part is my Chinese friends, you know, had a very visceral reaction to it. I, you know, I received emails. um,
2: Supportive.
1: Yeah, Facebook posts from them saying, you know, more or less, wow, this is, um, you know, this is how I felt. And I'm just glad that you were able to put it um, on paper or, or on screen.
2: Well, I'm not surprised that that positive response. But what about your other friends, the ones who who get worked up about um, uh, Taiwan independence or or Tibetan independence?
1: Right. I think um, they the ones who felt that, you know, my American friends, you know, in the media, covering politics in the media, international politics, who feel compelled to cover any of these protests as they pop up around the world, saw it as um, just a standard piece you know, they were glad to have it. They had no problems with it, but felt, but was largely indifferent to it. Okay. They, they thought this was just, you know, another piece that's turned out about um, about how Hong Kong, uh, you know, about Hong Kong and China. And to me, it felt so different from the politics pieces I've written. So,
2: yeah, I mean, I thought it was I mean, it really it popped for me. It was very interesting because it was really the first time that somebody had tried to articulate the sort of General, I mean, around that same time, I was having a lot of conversations with people, and the metaphor that I kept hearing, or the, the sort of parable that I kept hearing, was the parable of the, the, the kidnapped twin. <laughs> right? So there, there was, you know, the, the, in, 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 in rough form, it says, so these twin boys are, are, are born to a rural family, and at birth, one of them is kidnapped and then sold eventually to a rich uh, foreign family, or a rich urban family, at least, and uh, is raised until the age of, say, 16 by this rich foreign family. And he comes up uh, with, you know, a fairly posh education, speaking foreign language, is is uh, wearing nice clothes and has very civilized manners and, and is used to quite a bit of, of independence, But then law enforcement finally restores him to his biological parents and they bend over backward. You know, this is this is, of course, the Chinese perspective to accommodate this guy, this kid, uh, even his twin brother, who is is kind of. Uh, rough around the edges and is not very polished at all and and uh, he he does his best he's very solicitous with him they're given he he gets a room above the garage meanwhile (laughs) this family's done you know with its own entry and but he's always yelling at his parents when they come in uh you know they track dirt into his into his house
1: wow, this is, a, this is a very kind of well thought out. Yeah, a, well,
2: I mean, I, I heard it a lot. So
0: the rest of his family is really pissed <laughs> right, right, they think he's like a spy yeah, Right, right. You know, yeah. they, they say,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah right, right, right. So yeah, that's the one that, that I was... And yeah, that, that, it really pisses people off. I mean, Hong Kong people off to, to, when they hear this one. They're like, well, what about the fact that this uh, this guy abuses his wife and his own child? What about, you know, all the, the, the jia bao, you know, the family violence? What about... Um, yeah, I mean, and all of that, I think, is a, a very legitimate... Way to poke holes in the,
0: but but I, I guess your point is that the 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 point of view of the 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 brother who is brought up in the poor peasant household is not told a lot in English at least, so it, it makes a a gap of understanding like that's why right. Chinese attitudes to Hong Kong are this right. way. Right, right, right. Uh, Nobody
2: inter- interviews that brother. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's why I thought that's like why, you were channeling that. That's why Jiang is uh, important. <laughs>
1: Uh, well, really. no, no,
0: that's not why. That's well, <laughs> one article that was important that you did.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, that. that uh, this is again sort of a a, per, a personal detail, but um, I actually, you know, that that parable resonates particularly with me because I did have an aunt who was sold. This is in the in, in the Great Famine, that was very much, you know, man made as we now know. She was, I think. Uh, sixth child, the youngest daughter, and had been sold to school teachers who were fairly better off in the village, who could not conceive, and they all lived in the village. Um, her five brothers and sisters with their, you know, with my with my grandparents, um, and she um, lived in relatively better circumstances on the other side of the village. And by better circumstances, I mean she, you know, would not starve. Um, <laughs> um and, and you know had um and had you know had had flour that could be you know made. She had, had rice bread. every day. She almost. had. She had not every day, but you know, but, but once but, a week, she had, right? Yeah, over eighteen hundred calories. <laughs> um and this and I you know I came upon this at age I think six or seven. You know I visited the village for the first time and I was introduced to this aunt and I was told, well, you don't really have to call her like. Aunt, like, she's not – I mean, she sort of is your blood relative, but she's not really a blood relative. It was very confusing to me, uh. as you can imagine, as a, as a six-year-old. But um, the distance that she had from the rest of the family and how she clearly felt more comfortable calling her non-birth parents, you know, mo- mother and father. But she also felt somewhat like she had to acknowledge, you know, her – her blood siblings and uh, parents and strangely i thought most strangely some of the resentment that my aunts and uncles felt toward her that was really the puzzling bit because when i saw her you know she hadn't been toiling under the fields for the number for the, for the number of years that right. um, the other five kids had been, so she had to me what seemed like you know remarkably smooth white um, skin and a right. pale skin right. and, and 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 just you know soft hands, which wow. to me I just remember her soft hands. Which... Hong
2: Kong has soft hands. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> no, but, I mean the thing about this this metaphor and I mean, and your aunt's experiences is that I definitely also uh very much empathize with her mm-hmm. and with with the, the kid twin cuz you've
0: relatives who I thought had you were say really because shitty I shitty
2: time in China yeah yeah I mean they're but yeah. for the I wasn't going to say God, God, you have no rough lot, hands you were going to say that I had fair skin I thought yeah. <laughs> well, 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 well. Damn. you
0: have lovely hair
2: <laughs> actually this is the first time that we've had a guest on here that has unequivocally better hair than me <laughs> I mean that's just really it's <laughs> remarkable yeah. so like I want to ask another thing uh, Jiang, we were on a
0: panel together uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a few yes. weeks ago in Chicago it was an Asia Society thing in front of a bunch of teachers and one of the things that i found most memorable about it was i think one of the uh, first questioners who stood up in the q a session was a chinese teacher from mainland china and she stood up and the first thing she said was that she just found it wonderful that there's this chinese woman who is working for the new yorker for this (laughs) you know wonderful magazine that she likes so much and she she found it really inspiring um can you talk a little bit about you know, the reaction of your Chinese friends and, you know, people to you being a Chinese woman working on this prestigious publication?
1: First of all, I'm usually just... (laughs) First of all, I'm usually just so shocked that, um, you know, that young that you know among young Chinese that they've heard of the New Yorker Uh, oh really you're shocked
2: okay I
1: I, I, um. Peter
0: Hessler. what's got more cachet than I think
2: (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: um, (laughs) he
0: introduced it to a lot of people yeah Yeah. and
1: I guess it's Still better known among sort of an you know an educated elite
0: who, yeah. you know, who, who, yeah.
1: who read English but again my first reaction is always is is always just um, oh is, you
2: know the magazine <laughs> right exactly and you're not like
1: confusing it with like New York post or like you know, you know uh, <laughs> or, um, uh, so so just gratitude that that they know the magazine and you know with closer friends um, who either you know have lived in the state States for some time, or uh, have you know been reading, or at least are familiar with the magazine. Um, the most frequent question I get is, do you, as a Chinese writer, feel that you have to write toward a magazine, a Western magazine agenda? Is your editor somehow? Uh, right. Is your editor somehow? Pitching the story in a way that you know the thesis has already been established, and I'm always again sort of you know taken aback by the question, but grateful for the opportunity to correct that misconception. Right? You know, I they're I, so
2: convinced that it's you know inherently biased,
1: right? Right, uh, or that there's agenda, right? And I and I say, you know, I think the agenda is that we want to tell a compelling. And truthful story that really marks an inflection point in China, be it you know a cultural one, political one, socioeconomic one. I mean, that's sort of the task of any good journalistic story. But beyond that, there isn't a political agenda to market China in a certain way, and that always I'm always surprised by the frequency of that question.
2: I'm just going to come out and say, I mean, it's, it is one of the few western publications that actually gives writers the space to provide context and to you know get a little perspective on things and mm-hmm. look at the talent that they've had writing on china i mean it's really a pretty impressive collection of people oh indeed uh, yeah yeah yeah. and i suppose part of that is helped by the fact that it
0: doesn't have like a daily news agenda right, I right, mean, right, right. you know th- there is it's not
2: an it's not a newspaper actually it's a it's a magazine Although there was one one thing that ran in the New Yorker not very long ago that raised a lot of, of of anger from Asian Americans, or specifically from Chinese Americans, and that was
1: Calvin Trillin's little <laughs> poem. Right. Have, have
2: they run out of provinces uh, yet?
1: <laughs> provinces, yes.
2: So, so did, how did you react to that? Uh, did you were you one of the people who was you know angrily tweeting saying, "Oh, let's- no,
1: I am. Um, <laughs> I I was not. I mean, I, I come at it a little bit differently. Um, I have to admit that I have been on count." food tours in Chinatown with Bud and know him to be a Bud real, is Calvin
2: Trillin right
1: um right Calvin Trilling and I know him to his be his
0: nickname is Bud yeah Bud. oh okay sorry um I'm a little it's an insider <laughs> thing, it's an insider thing I can't believe you didn't Bud. know that I didn't know All that either. Bud. <laughs> um
1: uh and uh you know i I see him on you know on his rickety bicycle you know going down streets um, he's got like a
0: hipster flying pigeon or something
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know you know and he is um and he is out there rain or shine you know um
0: eating chinese food
1: not only eating chinese food but really sort of sussing out places that i didn't know you know even existed and actually you know i think tutoring me in, you know, how certain, you know, rice pastries are made and how, you know, that, that, you know, hole in the wall that he's found that, you know, produces that particular kind of pastry. So, you know, when I read the poem, I, it's, it's evident that it's a diddly, it's, um, it's not kind of a serious meditation on. Um, <laughs> on, it's, um, it's, culture. on. it's Yeah, exactly. It's, um, and. And I I'm very So, but can I ask? I mean, yes. do you
0: think that Asian Americans are a little too thin skinned about identity issues? Because I, 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 yeah, I'm well, going on into dangerous. Well, like that's putting people on the spot. Uh, no, I mean. Well, no, but, but where, where, where this podcast is about putting uh, people okay. on the spot occasionally. I mean, because um, I sometimes. With that. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, as a foreigner, you know, so I know nothing. You know, I, I'm such a foreigner that when I was 10 years old, no, when I was about 15 or 16 and listened to a lot of rap music, I thought the N-word was an acceptable way to refer to black people because that's what I heard from my music.
2: So I'm a real foreigner and I don't understand the issues. And you also grew up in apartheid South Africa. Yes, so that okay, was part so of I'm really there fucked there, in the yeah, head. Right.
0: Um, but uh, the, the question is sometimes I, I think that, I mean, you know, if you think of the Peter Liang case where, you know, okay, this cop shot, a guy, which if he wasn't Asian, if he wasn't Chinese, maybe there wouldn't be this fuss made, this poem. Sometimes it seems to me maybe there's a little bit too much sensitivity of a bullshit no, or not. I think,
1: no, am I, think, I wrong? No, I think you know you bring up a really fair point. What I clearly, um, you know, I cannot deny, and I and I, I am all for the exploration and the unpacking of the of the perceived prejudices and i think of the very of the existing biases in you know against um, attributes of asian americans chinese americans in, in in the country what i object to is the simplification i think of how these prejudices you know are expressed or are manifested i mean you may find Bud's poem lame you may you may think that it's not to your taste but to accuse it of being offensive I find is a little disingenuous there you know certainly when I read it there's nothing that I thought really denigrated my identity as a Chinese American and of and and you know like the you know the the Peter Leon case or i don't know if you guys have um read about the hazing um uh, and and that resulted in the death of this um 17 year old chinese american i think this case is is still in the court in the courts right now he was part of a large chinese american fraternity i do think there are these very complicated issues about chinese asian men in particular in the states having to prove their masculinity, having sort of been unfairly emasculated in certain ways, or at least kind of projections of them in the media, and Chinese women in other ways of being kind of either portrayed as, you know, these dragon ladies or as... Sex kittens. Sex kittens, exactly. I think those stereotypes are clearly really insidious, but I think their examination requires more than this sort of very brash attack of um a doggerel poem that was clearly intended to be doggerel I, I don't I, I don't see how and and you 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 know both of you are right there was just you know there was kind of this uprising um, and Twitter and elsewhere against this poem. Yeah,
2: and- my, my problem with it was that it was just crying wolf, that it, it makes people take you less seriously when you do have a, a legitimate Which complaint. I
0: suppose is the source of my question in a way is that I'm reacting to the crying wolf. Right, it, right. Yeah. Well,
2: uh, that, that isn't to say, so I would very... very uh, so I'd there are on, real issues, there, but
0: there's also bullshit, and, and, very and the much. trouble with the bullshit is that it, it covers over the real issues. Right, people
2: just say, oh, you're just an SJW and uh, you're, you're too thin-skinned and... and
0: uh, that's <laughs> SJW, that's J.W., uh, that's social justice warrior. Which well, just yeah. is, is a pejorative term. that's become a pejorative term. It is a pejorative term. Okay, let's change the subject. Um, restaurants, New York City, Chinese food, where, who? Okay, <laughs> give, us, give us a couple. Put you on the spot again. <laughs> Name a great Chinese restaurant in New York City. It's gotta be millions <laughs> we're well, just one we just need one <laughs> but we're
2: going to French tonight I think well yeah okay. but next time we come to New York <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> I mean uh, I live
0: in Nashville let's make, let's and you're gonna her, live in, let's, in let's, North Carolina right, but let's,
2: let's make her you know give that as a recommendation <laughs> And 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 let's thank her for taking the time to come and chat with us and congratulate her once again on your full time staff appointment. So yeah, hey, congratulations. And we are really looking forward to a lot of a lot more great writing from you.
1: Thank you so much. And it's just been um, it's been a lot of fun and a privilege the
2: Okay, so think about those restaurants while while we make a little plug. uh, before we get to Jeremy's recommendations and and mine and and Jiang's we want to remind our listeners that the cynical podcast is powered by SupChina. You can check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at China News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash News. So, recommendations. Let's start with you, J-Boy.
0: Okay, I'm going to go with one that has nothing to do with China. Um, children's books. You know, I have two small kids. My daughter is, like, nearly four. Um, and there's a series of books by, I think it's a British publisher, called Usborne, or Asborne, U S B O R N E. And there are two books in particular i like to re- recommend. One is uh, a book of a thousand animals, which is just like a big book with a thousand animals in it. Um, and the other is the Osborne book of Shakespeare, which is a kind of simplified Shakespeare. <laughs> and my daughter really loves it. Yeah. She's like... not even four and she's like really into Macbeth.
2: Oh, no, um, that's scary. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's um, one of my least favorite It is tragedies. pretty
0: scary, but, um... You know, and she like oh, you know, Twelfth Night is another. How do they simplify Till
2: Burnham Wood to Dunsinane That from.
0: that that bit they actually have in the original Till uh, Burnham Wood so, to Dunsinane. Uh. Um, uh, unfortunately, they cut out Bubble Bubble Toil and Trouble. Oh, so no, that's not <laughs> fair. Um, that's, which that's is not good. Um, but, you know, my daughter's name is Viola, and the first uh, story in this gone, is, is 12 of the Tiger. <laughs> so um, maybe that's got something to do with it. But uh, really fun. If you have small children and you want to get them addicted to Shakespeare, I would recommend it. Cool. All
2: right, Jayang, you are up.
1: Um, two short recommendations. Um, one is somewhat related to children's books. I have been, I found this recording of myself At um, age three, my mom made a recording of me reciting Tang poetry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Ah, So
1: (laughs) and uh,
0: (laughs) so the talent started early. I (laughs) I mean,
1: it's 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 akin to sort of you know to to um to, to learning Shakespeare early. But I, I mean, I guess this is a plug for, you know, for a very small segment of, of, of parents with small children who have some command of Chinese. I think, you know, it would be a great way, especially if you're if you have kids between the ages of, like, three and, I don't know. Six, yeah. Six, or I was going to say even, like, 11. Uh-huh. Um, uh, like, tongue poetry, uh, they have a great rhythm. They are, um, you know, they rhyme. If they're studying Chinese, just get them, get them small, thin book. Get them, you know, an audio tape. I guess they would be MP3s now. Um, and they're really, uh, they're really Beautiful to the mm-hmm, ear, mm-hmm. and the, their and their images, I think, are fairly easy to comprehend.
2: Shall we recite one together?
1: <laughs> you will. Oh, you no, will wrap won't. up this. Um, no, I won't, session. I won't.
2: I I, I still know a, f- a few from my childhood, but right, no, no,
1: and right. they I think they pay dividends as you as you get older because something about knowing those verses at, when you're young you, they really do accompany you as my you get older. My kids
2: compete to see how how far they can get in Di Gui or, or in San Zijing.
1: Oh, San Zijing. Very well done. Yeah,
2: they, they, they see, I mean, they can do, you know, a couple of hundred lines each, I think.
1: Wow. Um, yeah, well, they used mm, to be able to. Wow. Yeah. That's, that, that's much more impressive than me. Yeah, All right. right. All right. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and my second one is um, a, I recently... A restaurant, right? You're yes. Here. I recently went to this restaurant in the West Village in the East Village. I'm sorry. Called a Mala project, and they serve. Um, ah, yeah, mala- that I
0: read your article on that. <laughs> That's fantastic.
1: They serve um, Mala um, uh, dry pot, which uh, is not- y- 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 mala <laughs> mala um And you get to choose your ingredients, and you have that. To me, the addictive peppercorns in there and you can choose your your blood spice level. And I mean, I am um, and I I mean, I am, uh, you know, an admitted addict. And um, if you have, you know, if you're ever by the East Village, you know, stop by. You can even make your own vegetarian concoctions, but make sure you get as much of that chili oil and peppercorns yeah, exactly. in there as you can handle.
2: Nice. What's always struck me as strange is the popularity of one particular ingredient, and everyone seems to order when they do guo which is Oh, gets, I'm
1: not a fan, but yeah. So it's, that's, that's, that's like, I'd like, like some spam favorite. in my. let's yeah. Yeah, say. Like, well, I think it was at a time when that was, um, you know, there, it's there
2: nostalgic, right?
1: Not only nostalgic, like uh, spam and also ramen. And in early '90s China, I don't know if you guys were around for this. Oh, I this was, was yeah. when luxury. Um, luxury items major luxury items you could eat spam with um your you know like you know hard boiled ramen you were like you know you you were dining in high style
0: (laughs) right right so as opposed to like organically artisanally produced pork that was actually available to you for a little Exactly.
1: exactly so i think that's that's how spam has been grandfathered in
2: uh, okay, I get it now. So I'm going to make a recommendation um, for people who are going to be in Beijing on September 30th. Lao Tui Jian uh, is going to be playing a rare concert at Workers Stadium. You guys hear about this? I mean, it, I didn't. He's no. returning to Workers Stadium. Yeah. Oh wow. Yes. Uh, I saw him there ages ago, and um, and I, I've I've seen him many a time. Of course, at one point, I guess we we were sort of friends. Uh, I've always had an, an, an enormous admiration for the guy. Uh, he's come in for a lot of criticism, of course, over the years, and not everyone likes his newer stuff. I think most people would prefer that he just start, sort of stick to stuff off, off of Xin Chang Yongshan. That's a lot, of, a lot of musicians have that problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, I, admi- I, I have a tremendous admiration for the guy. And so, yeah, I, I, if I were going to be in town, and it doesn't look like I will be, um, but please, somebody, you know, do, do, do check that out. So... Let's thank Jiayang once again for coming in. Yeah, it was great, great to talk to you. And, and I'm going to definitely check out the uh, Mala Project next time I'm, I'm in town. Because so I'll be jonesing for that stuff. <laughs> I, I'm jonesing right now. Thank you. <laughs> thank thank, you, thank you, you so much Jiayang. for having
1: me. That, w- that was fun. You guys.
2: The
0: Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and me, Jeremy Golcon. Special thanks this week to Ala Chang, Amadeo Tumomilo, and Soraya Darabi. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast or follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thank you very much for listening and we will see you next week.